Bible. So let me pray again and ask for the Lord's help in that. Um, Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Father, thank you for this. Um, thank you for the story. Thank you for the book of Joshua and for how, um, Lord, insightful it is to us um, on what it means to have your presence be with us, to go before us. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I hope you keep the passage open because we're going to look at it quite a bit. Um, but before we get into Joshua 2, you know, in Hebrews chapter 11, over in the New Testament, you have this amazing towering chapter in the New Testament that is known as uh, the Hall of Faith. And in that chapter, you just get uh, mention after mention of the great heroes, the great uh, fathers and mothers of the faith. And so it's the most faithful people in the Old Testament are mentioned there. So you have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, you have Joseph, you have Enoch, you have Noah, you have all of these amazing people mentioned in there. All the stories that you know. And then you get to the very end. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it says this. By faith, so it said, by faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Joshua. And now, by faith, the prostitute, Rahab. Wait, what? What? Abraham and Moses and... Enoch, the one who it seems like he was maybe as close to as morally perfect as he could possibly. They're all mentioned there. By faith, by faith, by faith. And now by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. It's incredible. Rahab is mentioned, listed as a great, one of the greatest persons of faith you'll ever come across in the history of the world. She's in the same breath as Moses, as Abraham, as Isaac, as Joseph, these incredible fathers of the faith, and Rahab. Well, why? Why? Why mention Rahab there? Well, because she is a model of acting on the facts of faith. She's a model of that. We're now in the second week of a series in the book of Joshua called Be Strong and Courageous. And the book, it actually starts out by saying those very uh, same words four times in the first chapter. Remember, it says, be strong and courageous. Said it four times. And what we saw last week is that strength and courage, it's not really the stuff of the Batmans and the Supermans. And it's actually, a, it's a byproduct of faithfulness. Everyday faithfulness. And now in chapter two of Joshua, we get this story about Rahab. And by the way, if you wanted to, to just get the whole story of Joshua, you know, which is all about Israel entering into the land that God had promised them, you don't need chapter two. It's not necessary. You could actually skip over chapter two and all of Joshua would make sense to you. So, but he pauses to tell this funny little story about Rahab. Why does he do that? Well, it's because in Joshua two, the story of Rahab, we really learn what it means to have faith. Not just to have it, but to act on it. And this is what I hope we become as a church, a people filled with strength and courage that comes from faith. And what we'll see in Rahab's story is that the acts of faith, they're always based on the facts of faith. And I'm not normally one to come up with pithy statements like that. But the acts of faith are based on the facts of faith. And I actually hope that this one sticks with you. Because if we see it and if we act on this, we will actually become people of faith. And if we do, the byproduct of that faith is courage, strength. 
And so the acts of faith are always based on the facts of faith. And what are those facts? Well, actually, it's the very same ones. As we go through this passage, we're going to see the very same things that we saw last week. I'm not just recycling points here. It seems that Joshua is being really intentional on this. But the facts of the faith are the same as we saw last week. The promise of God, the presence of God, and the word of God. They're all right here in chapter 2. So let's take a look at this. Now, the first seven verses of this chapter, they give us the context. So Joshua sends out two spies uh, to go into Jericho. Well, actually, they go into the land. They go through all the land to scout it out. And uh, just to see what they're up against. And these two spies, they end up at Rahab's house in Jericho. Now, Rahab is the outsider of outsiders. So it says that she's a Canaanite. The Canaanite, they're the enemy of God. And as we read on, we find out that she's a prostitute. And so she doesn't fit with the morals of Israel. She's a liar. She's a traitor, actually. And yet, now Rahab's house, it's, it's likely a brothel. It doesn't say why the spies go there. It doesn't say um, just that they did. But my guess is it's probably because uh, it was a place they could, they could blend in as outsiders. They're outsiders to the, to the land. So they go here because that's where all the outsiders go. And uh, maybe they could get some intel. intel. There'll be other travelers there, other people who maybe don't want others to know why they're in the land. And so they go to Rahab's house. And the king of Jericho, he finds out they're there. And so he sends some of his men to go and arrest them. And for some reason, Rahab, at great risk to her, at great risk to her, she hides them. And then she lies to the king's men in order to get them to go away. And as you get to the end of verse 7, you have to be thinking, why is she doing this? Why is she doing this? Surely, surely the king is going to figure this out. And that's the end for her. Why on earth would she hide them? Well, that's what the middle section of the chapter is all about. And that's what we're going to focus on today, which leads us to point one. So point one is the facts of the faith are first the promise of God. Now, keep in mind in verse one, when Joshua sends the two spies into land, he tells them especially, it says he, they should especially scout out Jericho. They, they definitely need to go there. And, and I think we can only take that to mean Joshua saw Jericho with its massive, strong walls to be their most formidable enemy. And so Joshua, the spies, the nation, they're actually looking at Jericho. They're looking at Canaan, uh, sort of like every Olympic basketball team since the Dream Team came out has looked at the Dream Team, right? They're, they've got the best players. They've got Michael Jordan, Shaq, or whoever's on the Dream Team now. I don't even know. Um, but every team must look at them and just think, there's no way that we're going to defeat them. And yet, unbeknownst to Joshua and the nation of Israel, Jericho is actually looking the same way at Israel. They're looking at them like, how are we ever going to defeat them? Look at verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she, Rahab, went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. In other words, she's heard about the promises of God. She's heard the promise of God that he would save his people from slavery in Egypt and that he would give this nation a land. And that this land that God promised, that's her land. It's where she lives. It's where her house is. It's where her family is. Where all of her memories are. Everything. This is her land. 
And not only that, she's heard about the promise. Not only has she heard about the promise, she's heard about all that God has done to fulfill his promise so far. Because read on, verse 10. We have heard. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. She's heard the stories. Now remember, Rahab's house is likely a a place where lots of -of out-of-town travelers visited, which means she's probably had front row seat uh, from traveler after traveler who's come in and is like, did you hear about Israel? Did you hear that that God actually divided the Red Sea and they walked through? Did you hear about the battle against Og and the Amorites? Did you hear about what God has been doing? This nation has been wandering in the desert and God's given them victory after victory over their enemies. And hearing mostly about the God who is fighting their battles on their behalf. She must have heard story after story, which has probably led her What's led her to say something incredibly, incredibly profound for a Canaanite prostitute? Did you notice what she said back in verse 9? She said, I know. I know that the Lord has given you this land. What's she talking about? She's talking about the promise. She doesn't say, I heard that maybe God's given it to you. She doesn't say, oh, I noticed, you know, in the, in the description of some of these travelers that it seems like maybe possibly God's given. And she says, I know the Lord has given me this land. And so what's she doing? She's taking this as a fact, as something that she knows. And by the way, this is not just a leap of faith on her behalf. This is not just her hoping. She's actually basing her knowledge on facts because remember what she said. What had she heard? Verse 10. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. We've heard how he's defeated your enemies. Now, at its most basic level, what Rahab is expressing is that she knows something to be true because of something that she heard. She knows something true because of something that she heard. And in that, we actually see the essence or the nature of faith. And so what is faith? Faith is believing in something because of what you've seen or heard. I know this to be true because what I've seen or heard. And why else would people, I mean, think about it. Why else would people uh, jump out of an airplane? Right? You, you wouldn't jump out of an airplane because you hope the parachute might work. You wouldn't jump off a ledge with a bungee cord tied around your leg in the hopes that it might work. You do it because you've either heard that other people have done it and they're still alive, or you've seen it happen. Right? You wouldn't do it for any other reason. Now, let's just stop and think for a minute then about how the promise of God works. And so the future promise of God is always proven true by the past acts of God. That's what's happening here with Rahab. This future promise that God would give the land, she knows it's true because of the things that God has already done. She knows God will fulfill his promise of the land to the Israelites because he defeated the Egyptians. He defeated the Amorites. He sustained them in the desert by feeding them. He protected them from the attacks of poisonous serpents. He gave them water from a rock and on and on and on as she probably heard these stories. And so therefore she trusts the promises. In other words, faith requires history. Faith requires history. 
Future faith requires remembering historic acts. That's faith. Now, can I just say that in this extreme, this is this idea of having a history is really hard for our culture, really hard for our society. Uh, I think I've talked about this before, but you know, the well, the only social media account that I even know how to use anymore is is Instagram. I don't understand what the other ones do. I don't. I don't get it. Um, but Instagram, do you know? Do you know how it works? Like most people put these. What's called a apparently it's called a story. Is that what it's called? A story, the thing on the top. And how long does the story last? Twenty four hours, right? You put it up there. It's up there for twenty four hours, and then it's gone. Gone to the to the ether. It's just gone. Or let's say you. Um, you know, you're one of those people that actually scrolls through pictures that people put up that are meant to be there permanently. And you're scrolling and you're scrolling and you're scrolling and all of a sudden the page almost freezes and there's a little check mark on there. And what does it say? It says, you're all caught up. So what's that telling you? It's telling you live now, live in the present. You don't need the past. You only need what's happening right now. You only need the last 24 hours. You don't need anything more than that. As long as you have that, you're good. That's what our culture is telling us. But what this passage is showing us is that faith works really differently. Faith in the present, faith in a future promise is based on history. You have to know, Christian, listen, Christians have to be historians. Every Christian has to be a historian. We have to be people who look back beyond the last 24 hours. We have to be able to look back at how God has already acted in our lives up to this point and in the lives of those who've gone before us. Do you know that being a Christian means you have an incredibly rich history that includes the likes of Elizabeth Elliot or George Mueller, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon, their history, the things that they lived through, that's our history, that's your history. Go back even further, the likes of Luther and Calvin and Augustine, their history, that's our history. Go back even further, the apostles. The prophets, Joshua, Moses, Abraham, Enoch, Noah, all of them, their history is our history. And so Christians have to be historians. The writer of Hebrews says that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those who've gone before us, that we are able to throw off everything that so easily entangles us. Incidentally, that's one of the reasons why we, we have the Lord's Supper, why we do this every week. But what are we doing when we do that? We're being historians. We're looking back at the decisive act in history. We do that every week. And so when we're historians, we become strong and courageous like Rahab. Now, the facts of the faith, they don't only rest on the promise of God, but also on the presence of God. That's point two. Over the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about the presence of God. And here it shows up again. Because look at what Rahab says in verse 11. It says, when we heard of it, all the things that God has done, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now, I don't know if as these words are leaving Rahab's mouth, if she knows how uh, deeply profound these words are. I don't know if she even fully understands everything that she's saying. But this is a statement that if we grasp it, it would give us such strength, such courage, such 
faith that we could face what Rahab faces. And remember what she's facing. She's actually, she's facing death. I'm sure you realize that Rahab is committing treason here. If she's found out, that's the end for her and potentially for her family. Uh, it's been about, gosh, 15 years now or so. Uh, but the first time I went to uh, a former communist country, I went to the Czech Republic. And I had this, uh, it's not the same anymore. It's very different now. Uh, but the first few years that I was going there, I was constantly getting, on tro- getting in trouble when I was on public transportation or in a restaurant or anywhere public. Uh, because me as the... American with a bunch of other Americans there. We're just being loud. And to us, we're just having a conversation. But what we would get is these people that are a bit older than us, and they would, they would look at us like with darts in their eyes. And then the most bold of them would come up to us and go, shh, to, to shush us, to, to quiet us down. Now, why do they do that? Well, it's because for 40 years, everyone in the country was under threat of the secret police. And if they got caught saying something that the government didn't like, somebody might turn them in. And then they'd go off to a concentration camp. I have a friend, a very good friend there, whose father was actually put in a communist prison camp because he dared one time to say something against the government. He spent two years there, I think. Now, Rahab is actually facing something worse than that for what she's done. She's facing death. And what makes the difference for her? I mean, can you imagine this? Like she's hit, what makes the, why would she do this? What makes the difference for her? It's not only the promise of God, but it's the presence of God. And if we can grasp something of her statement in verse 11, it would fill us with strength and courage, just like her. She says two things that are so utterly profound about God. She says, the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. And it's shocking that Rahab would even say this because she's a Canaanite. Remember, the Canaanites, they're famously polytheistic. They famously worship many, many gods. But look at what she says. First of all, she calls God the Lord. But then she also, she doesn't say the Lord, your God, is a God. But she says the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. And so in this statement, when she calls him Lord, and when she says, your God is God in heaven above and on earth below, she's rejecting all other gods as she accepts the Hebrew God of the Bible alone. This is a monotheistic claim. She's gone from being a polytheist, many gods, to a monotheist, one God. The Lord, your God, is God alone. There is no other God above in heaven, no other God on the earth below. That's the statement that she's making here. So she's not already in trouble for treason. She's in trouble for idol worship in her culture. And by the way, you need to know these words, they only show up three other times in the entire Bible. Three other times in the entire Bible. And every single time they're used, they affirm God's absolute sovereignty over all things. So that's the claim that she's making. She's being put on the level of somebody who makes that claim. And so look, look briefly at the two halves of this profound statement. First, the Lord your God is God in heaven above. And do you know what she's saying? What does it mean to be God in heaven? What does that mean? 
Well, it means absolute sovereignty. It means absolute majesty. It means absolute glory. Absolute righteousness, absolute knowledge, absolute power. Listen to how the Bible describes God in heaven. This comes from Psalm 97, describing the Lord in heaven. It says, the Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles Look at this, the mountains melt like wax before him, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Or what about Isaiah 6? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook as the temple was filled with smoke. Or what about Ezekiel? Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapsus lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Or maybe the one we all know best, Revelation chapter 4. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. The Lord your God is God in heaven above. And by the way, in almost all of these descriptions of God in heaven above, what follows is him saying not much more than a word and what he says happens. In other words, utter, absolute, complete sovereignty and power. Almost as if a word from him is enough to accomplish all things at all times. The Lord your God is God in heaven above. That's the statement she's making. I'm certain Rahab didn't even have a fraction of these images in her mind as she spoke them. But we should. We've been given his great and precious promises. We've been given his word. Well, look what else she says. She says, your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now, this is exactly what we've been talking about for almost two weeks now. Moses, remember, Moses says... To God, I'm not going anywhere unless you go with me. I want your presence. 
And God says, I'll go with you. And then he says the same thing to Joshua. I will be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And now we see that Rahab has some understanding of the personal presence of God. Because she says God is God on earth below, not just far off, but he's near. And so if God's personal presence is near, then you're not alone. You don't have to be anxious about anything. You can be strong and courageous. And so let's put these two things together. The God who is seated on a throne in absolute radiant glory and power, who is high and exalted, who the mountains melt before him and rulers bow down and lay their crowns at his feet. He's near you. He's both. He is God in heaven above and on the earth below. This is the fact of faith right here. This is the fact of faith that should give you the strength and the courage to do acts of faith. And yet we tend to walk through life as if we're solo actors, like practical atheists. I might know in my mind that God is God in heaven above and on the earth below, but that fact doesn't then translate into my actions. And how would my life be different if I actually acted on this fact of the faith? That God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Would my life be any different? Would my relationships be different? Would my work be different? Would my family be different? Would I be more more bold to share my faith with someone? Would I be more bold to invite people to our church? Would I be more willing to be generous? Would I give more of my sacrifice more of my time if I knew that God was God in heaven above and on the earth below and I acted on that fact if I could grasp that doctrine down deep I'd be filled with strength and courage in other words with faith and so are you starting to see now how the acts of faith they or the facts of faith they lead to the acts of faith you see that and if you if you don't feel like like a person who can do acts of faith. Here's what I want you to hear. Take these facts and dig yourself into them. Dive into them like Scrooge McDuck into his pile of coins, okay? And swim in them. And then push them down deep into your mind, push them down deep into your heart. And here's what will happen. You will become the kind of person who does acts of faith. You don't have to plan it. It just will happen. Well, thirdly then, the third fact of the faith is the word of God. And the rest of the chapter records the culmination of Rahab's act of faith. So her act of faith is now coming. Here, here's the real thing. Um, and notice that her uh, act of faith is actually it's dependent on a word. Uh, look again at verse 21. And the translation probably in front of you, the NIV, uh, verse 21 says, Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. It's an okay translation, but almost every other English translation Translates it this way, and she said, according to your words, so be it. Now, she's not directly interacting with the word of God itself, but she is trusting in a word and a message delivered by the people of God. And by the way, you need to know this, that other than a handful of people who actually met Jesus and heard from him directly, this is how every person who's ever become a Christian has become a Christian. Through a word from a messenger. This is how they put their faith in Jesus Christ. For almost 2,000 years, you heard a message, you heard a word. And in the Old Testament, by the way, it was the same. The people of God heard a message. They heard a word from Moses. 
or from the prophets or from the king. And so every person, but an exceptional few like Abraham, like Enoch, like Paul, every person, but those exceptional uh, few who have ever put their faith in God, have put their faith in God through a word, through a message. And that's what Rahab does here. And her trust in this word is expressed by a scarlet cord. Now, over the centuries, people have made all sorts of allegories about this scarlet cord, about how it's, you know, ways that it's connected to Jesus. But here's what I think the scarlet cord represents. Why a scarlet cord? Why red? Is it because it stands out against the sort of uh, light-colored stone of the walls of Jericho? Probably not. But remember what Rahab is asking the Israelites of God. She's asking that when the nation comes to conquer Jericho, that her and her household will be saved. She is asking that they would pass over her house. That no harm would come to anyone who's dwelling in her house. And that is, in fact, that, that's the deal that she makes. The spies say to her, go and get your family and keep them inside because anyone who's not inside your house will likely die in the battle. Now, does that remind you of anything? Anything in Israel's history? Remember Rahab, she's likely heard all the stories from the travelers who passed through her house over the last years. What we're talking about here is the Passover. Do you remember what God said to Israel back when they were in Egypt that if they put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of their house, the plague of the firstborn son would pass over their house and that all who were inside would be saved. And here Rahab says just 40 years later, just 40 years later, that she will also put something red outside her house, a scarlet cord. And that's the deal they make. That's what verse 21 is referring to when it says, according to your words, so be it. That's the word. That's the message that the Israelites will pass over her house as long as she puts out the scarlet cord. As long as she does that, she'll be saved. And of course, all of that then points to how we're saved today. We're saved not by the we're saved not by a cord, but by the scarlet blood of a lamb. Of the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ himself. For those who are covered by his blood, the judgment of God, it passes over you. Just like it did Israel, just like it did Rahab, it passes over. And it sounds a bit barbaric in this day and age to talk about being covered by blood. And the image here is not of some sort of cultic act. We're not going to kill any lambs up here or anything. But it points to a real act of faith in history when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when he died, when he shed his blood to save his people from their sins. To save people from the judgment of God. And here's how the New Testament talks about the scarlet blood of Jesus. After Jesus died on the cross, the Apostle John, who was there at the crucifixion, he records this. He says, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead... One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing on a sudden flow of blood and water. So there's the blood. But listen to how some of the New Testament authors, they talk about the scarlet blood later on. Here, here's, this is Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, 
You who once were far away have been brought near by the precious blood of Jesus. Did you hear that? What is it that brings us into the presence of God, brings us near to him? It's the blood of Christ. Here it comes again in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Here's what this is saying. It's just like Rahab. Without some sort of covering, without a trust in a word, none of us could stand the judgment. None of us could be included into the people of God. None of us could ever come near to God. And so what it's saying is that we need the blood of Jesus to come near to enter into God's presence, to be near him. And that's exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ accomplishes. That on the cross, Jesus Christ shed his blood so that we don't have to. On the cross, Jesus Christ was judged so that we won't be judged. That's the Christian gospel, that Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived. And so he deserved to be exalted. He deserved to be glorified. But instead, he died the death we should have died. He was crushed. He was pierced. And when he did that, he gave his blood. And for all who trust in him, they will be saved like Rahab. The judgment will pass over them. That's the word. That's the message to trust in today. Now, these are the facts of faith. The promise of God, the presence of God, the word of God. Those are the facts. And if you push them down deep into your mind and into your heart so they become the foundation of how you live, you will find yourself becoming a person of great faith. You will find yourself becoming strong and courageous in situations you never thought you would be. Now, just one last thing about Rahab, because the way you become a great person of faith or strength or courage, it's not based on your past. It's not based on your faithfulness or your greatness. Think about Rahab. What was her past? Who was she? She was a Canaanite, the enemy of God's people. She was a prostitute, a traitor, a liar. She didn't fit with the morals of God. But do you know the rest of her story? We'll meet her again in a few weeks when we get to Joshua chapter 6. But she shows up again. We've already seen her showing up in Hebrews chapter 11 as an example of great faith. James in in the New Testament, he also mentions her as this great hero of the faith. But do you know where else she's mentioned? Matthew chapter 1. I had you turn there last week. Turn there again. Matthew chapter 1. You've got to see this. And we looked at this chapter last week and we saw that Joshua points us to a greater Joshua, to Jesus Christ. But Rahab also shows up in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. And in the genealogy, there are four women who show up in this And all of them, except Mary, the mother of Jesus, they all have a sort of shady past, all of them. But in Matthew chapter 1, we get a glimpse into the kind of person Rahab became after, after she put her trust in the promises of God, the presence of God, and the word of God. 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. It seems so obscure, but just read it in context. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, which means she was married to Salmon. The rest of Rahab's story is that she gets married. She marries an Israelite. She marries one of God's people. She enters into the people, the family of God. But she doesn't just marry anyone. She marries a son of Abraham, a son of Isaac, a son of Jacob, a son of Judah, a son of Perez. And her son goes on to be Boaz, the great kinsman redeemer of the book of Ruth. And so on and so forth until one of Rahab's line is Mary, the mother of Jesus. So what's your story? What's your story up to now? Has it been faithful, faithlessness? Is it shame? Is it brokenness? Is it loneliness? What's your story up to now? Because here's what this shows us, that those of us who have faith like Rahab can have a story like Rahab. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever you're carrying around, that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, and the promises of God, and the presence of God, and the word of God, you can have a redemptive story, a story not only, by the way, that affects and impacts your own life, but the lives of others, of those who come after you. And that's Rahab's. Do you realize right now that Rahab's story, her life is impacting us, not just because we're reading her words, but because Jesus Christ is from the line of Rahab. And so be strong and courageous. Act based on the facts of faith. Act on the promises of God. Act on the presence of God. Act on the word of God. And you will find yourself becoming strong and courageous. Let me pray. Our Father, we, we say thank you for this story. Thank you for including this story in this passage. Father, thank you for showing us the faith of Rahab. And Father, would you make us people of faith as we rest in, as we trust in the promises of God, of the presence of God, the word of God, Lord, would we all be people of courage and strength and faith? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.